All right. Welcome back, Internet friends, to Love-Hate Relationship, an opinionated podcast for opinionated people. I'm Andy Bowell. And I'm Alex Ruiz, and we're here to brighten your day, anger your soul, and tell you how to live your life. In that order. How you doing today, Alex? I'm good. I'm good. I'm, uh, it's weird. I'm, like, by myself this weekend. Uh, my wife is off visiting her sister's. Uh, and so I have the apartment to myself, which, you know, some people would use as an opportunity like that to go out, party, do some, like, I don't know, get ratchet in some capacity. <laughs> uh, I bought and ate an entire Little Caesars cheese pizza. There you go. Ate that in one go and, uh, watched a whole shitload of Key and Peel. So... So That's where I am right now. You're living your best life. Yeah, I'm uh, I'm bacheloring it up. But, nice. Yeah, it's that, and I did a bunch of laundry. That's that's my life right now. Very important, constant struggle. Yeah. Yes. Yes, indeed. We <laughs> saw each other this past weekend. You and I did. We did. It was wonderful. Yes, I got to meet your gorgeous snakes, mm-hmm. uh, Gomez and Morticia, and you showed me a bunch of disturbing YouTube videos uh, <laughs> involving white people discussing the use of the N-word and uh, Chris Brown. Yep. Yep. So all all in all, it was a delightful experience. Uh, a horrible uh, entertainment choice all around. <laughs> ah, I mean, I had fun. I'm How glad. are you doing? I'm doing really well, man. I'm uh, I'm binging all of Westworld right right now to try and beat the fact that season two starts uh, tomorrow night, and a bunch of friends want to get together and do a watch party. So. Oof. I'm very much enjoying that. Everyone tells me how good Westworld is, and I'm not against watching it, but I kind of am having deja vu to Game of Thrones, which is just, everyone's on board with it, and I'm kind of just trying to create the buy-in for the amount of emotional energy a show like that seems to take. Sure. Um, It is the first show in a while that has me actively just screaming, what, at the TV, so that's enjoyable. Mm-hmm. Um, I would equate it more to the uh, Battlestar Galactica reboot that uh, came out, like, ugh, God, a decade ago at this point. Um, but it's mm-hmm. really good, high-concept sci-fi, so I enjoy it a lot. Cool. I-, I was never a Battlestar Galactica person, but, you know, I think I, I remember the conceit of Westworld. Like, when Westworld was explained to me, uh, I immediately thought of the Simpsons' Itchy and Scratchy Land episode. Yes. <laughs> which I think the two kind of share some source material. I think I was told that somewhere. Like, they're, the Simpsons are making fun of the same book that Westworld is based off of. I think I read that someplace or other. And... Right. Yeah, I think you're right, because uh, Westworld itself is an old john crichton book and it's basically mm-hmm. jurassic park only the uh dinosaurs are robot cowboys and everything else goes on exactly the same and wait uh, john john crichton you mean michael crichton michael crichton yes i'm sorry michael crichton okay, okay. john john crichton sounds like an accountant somewhere like i think john crichton is the main character of uh farscape so i'm just i'm i'm all <laughs> I'm all mixed up with my sci-fi TV references right now. <laughs> oh. You, you, you know what they say, like, white people all look the same to me, so it makes sense <laughs> that their names would all be the same, too. Like, Right? I, I, I kid the whites. I kid the whites. Speaking uh, of white people, um, I'm going to shoehorn us into our topic today, 
uh, or at least my topic, my love for today. I'm going to talk about the whitest sport known to man, uh, which Golf. is hockey. 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 Specifically ice hockey, because there are different flavors. Um, specifically okay. ice hockey. This uh, this past week, the National Hockey League playoffs started. I don't know if we said this before in a recording episode or not, but hockey is my sport. It is the one team sport I pretty much care about at all. And so this is an exciting time for me to go cheer on the teams I like and hope that the teams I hate lose horribly. And it felt cool. uh, it felt right to talk about that this week. Nice. Uh, I do feel the need to preface to anyone listening, because I, I think this is going to probably come out several weeks, if not um, a couple, if not a month or so after we actually record this uh, based on the timeline we've been discussing. So um, that game that you were talking about has occurred in the past to the people listening, but is occurring right now for us in recorded timeland. Yes. Uh, for okay. all, for all we know, the, uh, the Stanley cup finals might be going on by the time this actually airs, but, um, okay. I don't think that'll, that'll, uh, matter too much to the context of what we're saying, but good to preface. Sure, sure. Okay, so hockey. Talk to me. Talk to me about hockey. Um, okay. Listen, I, I, all I know, all that I know about hockey can pretty much be, like, summed up in the three Mighty Ducks movies, which I watched tons of as a kid, uh, and the trailer for the Miracle on Ice movie, which I didn't watch, but I remember the trailers and going, <laughs> well, that looks like Chariots of Fire for, ho- for hockey. That trailer single-handedly brought Aerosmith to a whole generation of kids who just didn't know what it was before. So, doing the Lord's work there. Uh, okay. <laughs> All right. So okay. So hockey. So hockey. Um, you know, just the briefest of explanations for anybody who's not familiar with the sport. That'll probably be most of our listening audience. Um, it, the sport mm-hmm. itself, in its current format, is over a hundred years old. Um, okay. Hockey, as we know it, was invented in 1875, and the National Hockey mm-hmm. League, which is yeah. the big hockey league in America. Uh, was founded in 1917, so they actually just had their centennial season last year. Uh, Mm -hmm. It's very popular in all of the colder countries. Um, No surprises Mm -hmm. there. Obviously, the places where lakes freeze over are the places where Mm -hmm. people like to go out and whack each other with sticks on them. Which is why the Mighty Ducks movies took place in Minnesota. Go on. Absolutely. It, it's it's the national sport of Canada. It's you know it's it's one of the it's my personal favorite event of the Winter Olympics every year is to do is to watch the uh, hockey tournament that they do there. And yet, all of that aside, it is not probably it is the least popular of the big four team sports. So baseball, basketball, football, and then you have hockey. And I think. That goes into, like I said, it's popular in the places where lakes freeze over and such and it gets cold, but that portion of the world is, what, a fourth, a third, maybe? Uh, I've heard people make the comparison that soccer 
is so popular and accessible because all you need is a ball and you can play it anywhere. And that's absolutely true. Yeah. Um, yeah, absolutely. And hockey is not like that. You need sticks, you need skates, you need it to be cold out. Mm-hmm. So that just sort of creates a inherent popularity problem. Sure, yeah. And, and I mean, you, okay, so you mentioned soccer. So the context where I would approach that question is, I, I think about like, okay, so my father grew up in uh, rural Colombia, and his big three sports, like he was an athlete growing up, and his big three sports were soccer, basketball, and volleyball. Yeah. All sports where if you have a ball... You can make whatever else you need. You know, you want to play basketball, you stack up some boxes and put a basket on top of them. You want to play soccer, you put a couple trash cans on either end of a field or some sticks. You want to play volleyball, some sticks and like tie a rope across them. Poor people can play those sports pretty easily. So also it's fair to say he's in a he was in a tropical right. climate. So one a whole lot of ice freezing over and such. And and if you're not in a place where lakes are freezing over, you need expensively maintained hockey rinks, right? Right. There's very little cool runnings type shenanigans going on in the world where, yeah. you know, you're you're getting the the Ecuadorian hockey team to go make a a name for itself out there. Uh, funny enough, there is one of those um, expensively maintained ice hockey rinks across from my apartment complex. <laughs> Right, ironic. Well, you live in Maitland, Florida, which That's is true. which is interesting because Maitland's Maitland's not a poor area. It's not a rich area. It's not far from some rich areas, and it's not far from some poor areas. So that's yeah. interesting. Um, so the, I, I I don't want to start talking about hockey without pointing out the what I see are the inherent flaws, and and the popularity accessibility is the biggest one of those. Um, But, you know, what I wanted to do today was kind of make the case for my love of the sport and kind of delve into why I love it and delve into why if you and I, who really don't follow any other sports can do this, delve into why I don't care so much for other ones like uh, basketball and baseball and all that. I love it. So why, why do you, why do you personally Andrew Richard Bowell, why do you give a shit about hockey? Like I give a shit about hockey really because it's unlike anything else. Uh, I grew up in a household where my dad was watching pretty much everything. You know, he, uh, when it was football season, uh-huh. he'd watch football. When it was baseball season, he'd watch baseball. When it was hockey season, he'd watch hockey. So I had yeah. equal amounts of exposure to all of these sports growing up. I'm not going to sit here and say, oh, it's what I watched as a kid. And that kind of nurtured a deep-seated love in it for me. To be perfectly honest, Mm -hmm. between the ages of maybe 10 and 16, I didn't give a shit about hockey or any sport at all. And then just something kind of clicked seeing it in the background of my uh, of the house I grew up in around the time I was 16, 17. And this fanaticism and obsession that I have for it really started there. Hockey is unlike any other sport obviously because it is played on ice it is a lot more fast-paced due to the skating and you know you can make the argument that any sport is 
unlike any other sport, but everything else takes place outside on grass and, in my opinion, is a little more slower paced. And especially Mm -hmm. the thing that you want to tell to anybody who hasn't seen a hockey game and maybe doesn't care, it's not a sport that translates terribly well to television. Uh, If you just put it on when you've never seen it Mm. before you know, whatever, it's something that somebody else is watching in the same room as you. Going to a hockey game and being in that environment and being in that powder keg of excitement and emotion is truly unlike anything else. Um, I've been to live football games. I've been to live baseball games. I've been to live basketball games. I haven't been to a live soccer game, so I won't uh, sit here and uh, talk about an experience I don't have. But going to a hockey game, seeing a fight, seeing two guys pound the crap out of each other, this is a big part of it. The fighting is awesome. I was going to ask about that, but please continue. Going, seeing a fight, seeing somebody score, seeing somebody make on a breakaway, and seeing the the crowd go wild, it really uh, sucks you up and it takes you in to this emotional place that it doesn't really exist anywhere else. Anywhere else other than like spectator sports or anywhere else other than hockey? I would make the case of anywhere else other than hockey. You know, like I said, soccer is kind of a blind spot for me. And the only comparison Mm -hmm. I I can maybe make is, you know, I've seen, uh, you know, the FIFA World Cup. I've seen the city of New York shut down over this tournament. I've seen... Uh, everyone's seen, uh, you know, the the pictures of people in Brazil just losing their minds. I imagine a soccer match is close in the just pure electric fervor of watching a team score. Mm-hmm. But hockey mm-hmm. has just something different to it, something personally that I think is unique. And so let's go ahead and get into it. The The, the biggest thing it does really have is the fighting. Like... The thing that makes hockey unique is it is a heavy contact sport, and I would dare say more so than football. Sure. Football, you know, tackling, you you can have a man built like a refrigerator slamming into another man built like a refrigerator, and there is a gladiatorial, cathartic awesomeness to that. Uh, But hockey takes all of that and dials it up to 11. You have people slamming into each other going 40 miles an hour. You have dudes, this isn't necessarily encouraged or allowed, but you have dudes breaking sticks over each other's arms and legs and tripping each other. And hockey is Mm -hmm. the only sport where it is not only allowed, but it is somewhat slightly encouraged for two players to just start beating the crap out of each other with with their fists and start bare-knuckle boxing. Uh, uh, Okay, so I was going to ask about that, because um, I know that obviously basketball has fouling, uh, obviously soccer has fouling, yellow cards, red cards, Mm. etc. I think there's an unnecessary roughness call in football. There is. Uh, Yeah, so so all of these sports, even ones that, ones like football, which are necessarily contact sports and you know in soccer there are techniques where you know you slide somebody out you trip them obviously you don't try to like hit somebody but there is a level of acceptable understood contact in soccer in in hockey um and again i'm taking all of this information (laughs) from three movies and a commercial uh but i know there's a penalty box i know because they put the bash brothers in them when they 
fight too much or get too aggressive. Obviously, that's a movie. It's meant to entertain to a certain degree. But where is there, if there is a penalty box, if there is the idea that, and, and people get put in the penalty box for a certain amount of violence, like what's codified in the rules? What's considered acceptable? What's considered excessive? Uh, so they've actually, the, they being the NHL and the the International Hockey Federation and the people who decide these sort of things have sort of gone to great lengths to to answer those exact questions but at the end of the day it's it's kind of up to the rest yeah it's it's there's no real continuity and it's kind of make it up as they go Uh, i do want to point out uh the league the hockey league hockey as a sport itself has gotten a lot less violent since the 70s when um oh no absolutely Okay. Uh, you know, the 70s, that's when stuff like Slapshot, which has the Hanson brothers, who are three thugs that can't do anything other than fight, you had the... Okay, so you say Hanson brothers, and I immediately am just like... Because we are millennials. <laughs> yes, well, please continue. The Hanson brothers, who I'm just going to picture as like giant behemoth alternate universe versions of the band Hanson continue. That's actually not far off. I'm going to send you a picture and you're going to be like, Oh my God. Oh, that's horrifying. Uh. Um, but to, but to, to my point, the 70s, you had um, people were making movies and the movies were all about the fighting. And you had the the 1977-78 Philadelphia Flyers who were called the Broad Street Bullies because they literally just pummeled their opponents into submission. Um, there is a penalty box and there are extensive rules and there's a lot of stuff that isn't allowed. But at the end of the day, short of taking your stick and trying to break it over somebody's head, which a player famously did and wound up being sued for uh, assault with a deadly weapon. Okay. Short of trying to literally murder someone... Everything is accepted to a degree. We're going to slap you on the wrist. We're going to get you out of the game for for 10 games. And then when you come back, be sure you don't try to take off Johnny Woodchuck's head. Oh, God, he took off Johnny Woodchuck's head. Whoever could have seen this. And that is a problematic element as much as it is the entertaining element. Yeah. And like I said, it's gotten a lot less violent um, over the years mm-hmm. as uh, as concussion science has gotten better and people are still trying to figure out exactly what's going on. But we as a people have figured out enough that maybe it's not the best idea to be slamming into somebody's head going 30 miles an hour or punching someone 10 times uh, in a month for, you know, six months out of the year. Yeah. Um, but there is still the excitement. It's still the the roughest sport. It is still rough and tumble, and people still tend to get excited in the moment when you know somebody hits somebody from behind. And as long as the guy isn't like visibly unconscious on the ice, and everyone from the bench jumps up and you you get a 10 person fight out on the ice that's still pretty awesome that's still pretty enjoyed and accepted Hmm. okay so i mean the fighting is definitely part of the culture it's part of the culture Uh, it's probably uh, i mean to, to look at it objectively it's it's a part of the culture that needs to get out um and hockey itself needs to find a 
appeal outside of the sport where you might watch somebody bleed. Yeah. Um, and, and I, I mean, there's, that. And, and I think about like, there's a stereotype of NASCAR fans and I know NASCAR fans. Some NASCAR fans are very dear people in my life. And there's a stereotype about them that they're just in it for the crashes. I, I this is the day of Simpsons references, but sure. I remember like the one where they were watching some kind of race and somebody gets in a crash and a helmet flies off and Cletus catches it and he's like, <laughs> I caught a hand. Oh, oh, it's being scooped out. And he just throws it behind him. Right. Like, and, and the thing is, that's a stereotype of NASCAR drivers. But like, I know NASCAR dri- or I know NASCAR fans. Most of them don't think about that. Most of them are invested in the personalities of their favorite drivers. Um, they're they're re- they really understand the complexities of the actual machines sure. involved in this. Uh, how difficult it is to race. There is a strategy to it. I'm sure there's a strategy to hockey beyond just beat the shit out of this guy or this guy. Let me ask you a hypothetical. If you saw a hockey game that had very, very minimal fighting, but really impressive strategic moves, like just really impressive plays, um, kind of more akin to what people would expect from a soccer game or a, or I, I'll even cut the difference and say like a rugby game. Rugby is a very rough sport, but there isn't out and out brawling in it. It's just very high contact. But kind of, if you saw a really well-executed game with very minimal fighting, would that be less enjoyable to you as a fan? Uh, no, no, it absolutely wouldn't be. Um, your, your question has kind of saved me here. I, I let us down a path and <laughs> made a core argument that I, as we were breaking it down, I really didn't uh, agree with. I don't want to say that fighting is the best thing of hockey so much as I want to say it's... Uh, something hockey had that was unique. Yeah. You know, people people talk about football, how in the old days of football, before all the helmets and the equipment, it was a less interesting sport, but also, you know, it was safer, but it was also more strategic. Same thing with boxing and the gloves. You know, the problem, the reason a lot of boxers have uh, the issues they have is because the gloves are actually too friggin' big and they cushion the blows too much so people aren't holding back they don't have to worry about hurting their hands right so if you actually minimize the safety equipment there it would change the way boxing happens it would change the way football happens because you'd have to be more strategic you'd have to set your plays and your playing up so that you wouldn't hurt your own players but you know people also say oh it's less exciting because there's less bashing around and it's less it becomes less violent as it becomes more strategic and people there are people who argue that it won't be watched if you do that. There's people who argue it will, though. So. Sure, and I, I, I can see the argument on both sides. I personally do agree with the skill over violence aspect, although, and, and I'm sure we'll get into this in one of these episodes or not, there is this undercurrent of a, a, a gladiatorial bloodlust that people tend to enjoy. It's the reason why the violence in hockey made it so popular. It's the reason why, you know, it's part of the reason why football is so popular. We like watching other people damage themselves. Um, Yeah. I don't want to get too much into that. I want to save that for a later episode. Um, (laughs) I do want to try to re-rally my argument and talk about the other thing that I like about hockey. Uh, you, you, Like I said, you saved me here and gave me a segue to talk about the skill. 
Um, something that is just awesome and enjoyable is the skill on display with the sport. You these these sure. athletes are strapping knives to their feet and skating mm-hmm. around for an hour and yeah. batting something that is the size of a crushed beer can around the ice mm-hmm. on a stick. And that is yeah. it, it takes a level of skill, it takes a level of finesse and when you see a truly skilled player do something awesome, it is spectacular and it is noteworthy and it is something to to start screaming and jumping up and down for and it's really cool. Yeah. No, that makes tons of sense. I mean, I so obviously, um, well, not obviously, uh, we've talked, we talked a lot in our practice episodes, and I'm sure it will come up plenty uh, in future episodes. But you know, I follow a lot of weightlifters and powerlifters, and and that's my that's my sport. That's that's the thing that I care about. But one thing that a lot of carryover happens there is you'll see athletes of other sports training so you'll see what football players are doing because a lot of them are being trained by the same kind of coaches the same people online who i'm following hockey players are a fascinating creature because much like football players they need to be horrendously explosive really powerful but also huge that is actually a misconception really yeah so tell me more so uh you know um, they do need to be explosively powerful, but the thing of it now, it's sort of becoming more of a a runner a runner swimmer build is the ideal hockey build. You need to be compact and sinewy, and uh, being huge helps, especially for an Im- intimidation factor. Especially from a oh my god, I don't want to get checked by that guy. He's seven feet tall. Factor. But the most important mm. thing is uh, having uh, your thighs and your legs be pretty much action-packed, lowering your BMI so that you are lean and lithe and uh, pretty much nothing but muscle, and then mm. going to the races and going 0 to 60 in that regard. That is fascinating. Okay, so that's something I did not know. You just corrected a misconception that I had because... And and this is probably self-selection, but most of the coaches I follow online and on Instagram who are training hockey players are showing me behemoth <laughs> men, which is probably marketing. Like, if, since you're saying that to me, I'm sitting here going like, you know what, it makes sense that they're going to showcase, because these are, these are strength and conditioning coaches, they're going to showcase, you know, right. their most quote-unquote impressive-looking clients. And for the hockey players, I mean, if you see someone of, like, a swimmer's body and you tell someone, oh, yeah, he's a hockey player, the first image that pops in your head is, oh, this person's going to have to slam into someone who's 320 pounds and barreling down at, like, highway speeds. Right. It doesn't look as impressive. No, and it's it's this whole aggression culture that the sport has been in for so long. It The sport is finally starting to get out of he needs to be – uh, six foot three or taller or else he can't play some of the most talented electrifying fast agile players are these little dudes that are like five seven five eight and it's the uh david and goliath type thing where they can get around the six foot six monster and you know mm-hmm. skate around him and use their their speed to do some really cool stuff that sounds really cool. I mean, that makes me think of, like, Muggsy Bogues back in the 90s <laughs> right. playing basketball, and he's this tiny little dude, but he's just faster and has better cardio and accuracy than 
everyone else out there and everyone else out there is the height of their profession so that's very much I, what I, it is yeah as a five six athlete like i i find that very gratifying but <laughs> <laughs> no that's that's really that's really interesting yeah. i i didn't know that i did not know that um i and i was still you know i don't know how you get past that stereotyping of the sport to anyone outside of it and it is yeah an issue it's definitely an issue i was just sitting here thinking about how you know i'm probably not going to convince any listener uh to go out and watch a hockey game on tv based on this podcast and it really boils down to it's something you need to see because the league is evolving, the league itself is adapting and learning to show off these more interesting things, and the biggest way to create a hockey fan is to convince them to give it a, you know, a shot in a live setting, mm-hmm. because that's when it gets awesome. And, you know, it's funny, because, like, I went to one hockey game when I was a kid. I remember this. My mother got some Solar Bears tickets when I was... I was probably 10, maybe. Uh, my mom got some tickets from work. She, like, won them in a raffle or a friend gave them to her. I, I, don't, I don't remember exactly, but she was kind of like, hey, I've never been to a hockey game. Like, <laughs> I'm, a, I'm, I'm, I'm a middle-aged Colombian woman. I've never been to a hockey game. Let me take, my kids have never been to hockey games. I don't really know anything about this. They're free tickets. Let's go out to a hockey game. And so I went out to a hockey game with my mom and my sister. And I think I remember my sister enjoying it. My sister was always more sports oriented than I was. I, I never cared very much at all. And I remember watching that hockey game. And I was more interested in watching the other people around me. Like the other people. I, I almost just said the other people in the audience. But I feel like audience is the wrong term for... Crowd. Watching a sports crowd, <laughs> spectators, etc. Which this all shows you my context. But no, I I remember seeing people getting really into it, and you know, I, and I watched it, and I I'll be honest, I had a lot of trouble following where the puck was. Um, sure, I I remember there being less fighting than I expected. Like there were some fights, but there was a lot less. That I, I thought it would just be brawl after brawl after brawl because, again, all I had were Mighty Ducks movies, right. where you know those are plot points. Uh, so, uh, I mean, it was fine. I I don't go for team sports very much. Um, I kind of have this thing where I'm like, anything that has a ball that you just have to chase <laughs> feels like. And a puck is, in essence, the same thing as a ball in that situation. It's like, ooh, let me follow the ball over here. Let me follow the ball over here. Let me follow the ball over here. Ray, he's kicked the ball. (laughs) Now the ball's over there. It's never been my bag. I've opened up to it a little bit more as I've gotten older. I've been to some soccer games and basketball games since, and it's been fine. It's not something I'm going to sit and watch. But I think more importantly than trying to convert anybody into a hockey fan, it's getting someone to think twice about stereotyping the sport or the fans. I can get behind that. I think that's more what you you can possibly accomplish with this discussion. Because, you know, I learned some stuff here. Well, I'm really glad about that, you know? Um, there's, there's a lot we didn't even get into. Uh, the Miracle on Ice, which, you know, we, we, we prefaced, but that was a huge uh, Cold War 
victory for the Americans. Um, you know, we didn't talk about the Stanley Cup, which is called the greatest trophy in sports and is really such a bigger deal than uh, winning the Super Bowl trophy or anything like that. There's a lot uh, I, we, we've been talking for a while and we didn't really get to touch on, but I, I like where you're going. And I think... I can I can walk away loving this and having a clearer idea of how to get other people to love it by having them drop those uh, those presuppositions and uh, go into it not with certain expectations. So good deal. Yeah, I really like that. And that's not to say like, hey, maybe we can revisit it again where one one of your loves could be the story of the Miracle on Ice or the Stanley Cup be. or something like that. Yeah, that and yeah. that's fine. Like I'm totally down for that. I. I say we. Re- I'm happy to revisit that idea, and we can always refer people back to this conversation. And you know, I I know you're a hockey fan. It's in your Twitter everything. Yep. Like <laughs> so. So I mean, let's. I'm fine if we revisit hockey. And now I have a better context to talk about it. You know, I, I don't know. I, I don't think I'm going to watch any hockey matches anytime soon, but I'm happy to keep talking about it if you're happy to keep talking with me. Oh, of course, man. So thank you. I enjoyed this. Absolutely. Me too. Uh, you ready to move on? Absolutely. I'm I'm very excited for your hate. Yes. I love that sentence. Just, I'm excited for your hate. Like, it's fantastic. <laughs> so, um... This is a hate that I feel very, very strongly about uh, because it's been going on for years and years and years and years and years. And it's easy to misunderstand. Anyone who sees the title of this episode might be slightly confused at what I'm titling this. But the thing that I want to put forward in this episode, the thing that I hate, is Nickelback haters. (laughs) Now, I need to specify... I don't hate Nickelback. I don't love Nickelback. I don't care all that much about Nickelback. They got a couple of songs that I really enjoyed like 15 years ago, and then I haven't really followed them much since. They've had a few songs that I hated, but I I don't really follow them. I don't own any of their albums. Whatever. What I... So this is not a defense of Nickelback. What I hate is this ridiculous unearned lazy meme of people (laughs) it's a lazy meme of people who just shit on Nickelback like it gains them entry into some kind of cool kids club okay so so let, let, let me start off Andy you've lived as much of your life on the internet as I have you're as embroiled in online culture as I am. So what's the first like couple of words that come to your mind when you when you think nickelback? Look at this photograph. Over perfect, and perfect. over okay, and okay. over and over again. Um, okay, so you have that. Now what's the first thing that you think other people think about when they think of nickelback? The most by the color by numbers um, we're not going to take any risks. Um, semi blue collar, semi country ish rock band imaginable. The safest rock band imaginable. I like that answer. Because you know what? It's very true. 
they are absolutely a band that is guilty of some very generic songwriting at times some very i like what you said they're by the numbers they're very much let me check these boxes yeah now um that's obviously worked for them uh some quick background uh since the band formed in 1995 they've sold over 50 million albums they've been ranked oh my god yeah, they didn't. They didn't really explode until the early two thousands, but they formed in ninety five. Okay, go on. Um, so they've sold over fifty million albums. They've been ranked the eleventh highest selling music act in the world, and are the second highest grossing foreign music act in the U S. Huh. After only the Beatles. <laughs> they've won multiple American Music Awards, Billboard Awards, uh, VMAs, People's Choice Awards, and they've been nominated for both Grammys and Kids' Choice Awards. They've not won any of those two, by the way, but sure. they've been nominated. Now, despite that clear and enduring popularity, the sales, the, that support, they've gotten consistently mixed reviews from critics. And uh, sometime around the early rise of the internet, it became this weird thing where everyone i started noticing this probably around 2004 2005 everyone was just shitting on nickelback yeah and and i remember reading like i think i remember first seeing it reading like a random cracked article and they were talking about something and then the person was making a joke about whatever their topic was and was like yeah this sucks more than nickelback <laughs> And I and I was suddenly like, "What does does Nickelback suck? Like, is this okay? I guess you don't like Nickelback." But then it started popping up everywhere. Yeah, meme is the best word for it because it, it it was this infectious group think that just sort of infested itself through the internet into the minds of people to you know associate this band with just shit. Yeah, and um, so you mentioned this, um, that they do feel very, by the numbers, very formulaic. Uh, and there's, there's a lot of truth to that. Uh, I actually did read in my research here that around 2001 or so, um, while they were working on their third studio album, Silver Side Up, which everyone remembers, that was the big breakthrough with the way you remind me song. Mm. This is how you remind me of <laughs> that one. That was a very, uh, oh God, what's the guy from Creed? Uh, Scott Staff. That was a very Scott Staff, <laughs> Chad Kroger. <laughs> With arms wide open. <laughs> There's an actual uh, quick sidebar story uh, for one of my birthdays while I was up in, when I was living in New Jersey, we went to a karaoke bar in uh, Philadelphia where they gave us our own private room and everyone was doing karaoke. And, like, I got into it. I love karaoke. Um, and then just to mess with people. And I, I, I can't remember if I picked this or if someone picked it for me, but someone put on Nickelback's photograph, <laughs> the one you just yep, said, yep. Uh, as, a, as a spoof. And I got up there, and in that voice, I performed the entire song, every damn lyric. Because I know it, sure. I actually know that song, <laughs> and it's, I don't know. It's fine. It's like a it's like a cute little pop song. Like I dig it. Yeah. Um, but anyway, around two thousand one, uh, Chad Kroger, the lead singer, uh, who I think used to be married to or dating Avril Lavigne, that is correct. Before she before she got together with a bunch of hockey players, we tied it together. Um, uh, Kroger began analyzing current and past radio hits. 
for whatever musical or thematic cues he could. He got, okay, songs about this, songs that use this kind of chord progressions, songs that use these modalities. And he used those cues. He became an intense student of pop and rock hits. And that informed his style of songwriting. The way you remind me, he talks about it as having these memorable hooks, um, very specifically, designed to be memorable, designed to stick in your head. Um, the romantic themes, everything he talked about there, it was designed to be a hit. And, you know, people point to that as a criticism of them. They say, oh, they're shitty because they very deliberately write songs to be hits. It's funny you say that. I was just about to say, you know, I'm enough of an analytics nerd that I didn't know he did that. And now that I do, I... I, I can't hate that. No, you can't. And I mean, the, and the thing of it is, okay, every friggin' person I know who shits on Nickelback for this stuff, with the exception of, like, my friends who are pretentious indie hipster nerds <laughs> who only listen to, like, underground metal and punk, um, who have their own problems, and that there are, there are some serious problems with that culture, every single other person I know, if they hate Nickelback, they're still fans of... Neil Sedaka from the old Brill Building era. You know, that 60s, oh, Carol. Oh, Carol. I am but a fool. Mm, sure, you know, sure, sure, sure. Calendar Girl songs. He did the same damn thing. There's a story where Neil Sedaka sat down with the Billboard charts lists and listened to every song of like the last 10 years and analyzed them to write, to start writing music. He wrote Oh, Carol because he figured out, okay, Songs with chord progressions in this key that do this kind of modality interchange uh, that have a woman's name in them that have a woman's name <laughs> in them, they tend to do really well. So he wrote "Oh Carol," and it's it's a classic. It is a yeah. classic of the 1960s. Right. It's I'm pretty sure it's in the Great American Songbook. He did the same shit. You know, yeah, yeah. Drake does this. Kendrick Lamar just won a Pulitzer for "Damn." And Damn is an incredible album. I love Damn. I may talk about Damn as a future yeah. love. If you compare Damn to Section 80, which was his underground debut, to Good Kid Mad City, which was his ma major label debut, and a really interesting concept album um, that absolutely, like, it's five years old at this point, certifiably a classic, to Pimp a Butterfly, which was a jazz experiment record, and then Damn which is another concept album, but Damn is the most commercial album Kendrick Lamar has ever done. He's got a couple of trap hits in there. He's got some really, really great, like, melodic hooks. And that doesn't happen in a vacuum. Kendrick Lamar understood that in order to keep progressing as an artist and in his success, he had to write more commercially viable music. We just gave Kendrick Lamar a Pulitzer for doing shit that Chad Kroger has been doing since 2001. And we've been shitting on him for that. I'm not saying Chad Kroger and Nickelback deserve a Pulitzer. I'm saying it's really, really hypocritical for people to pretend that that kind of commercial analysis doesn't matter. Sure. I And that that's reason to write somebody off. I wonder if there... This, I wonder if the notion that you look at Trad Kroger and you listen to Nickelback and both of those things are just kind of instantly easy to hate. Whether like, like Chad Kroger has a punchable face. Sure. 
Okay. I, that's I fine. wonder if there, if that wasn't part of how this thing gained so much attention because you, you, you give me an interesting thought. Music itself is such a subjective art form. Um, Mm-hmm. For something to be truly universally reviled, it has to be really bad. And mm-hmm. I can sit here and go, Nickelback isn't really bad. So there had to be something else is is kind of where my, my brain is going with this. And uh, meme culture has exploded along with the internet, so I'm sure that played a big part in it. Um, but you're making some really good points here is what I'm trying to say. Yeah. Well, I appreciate that. I, I, and I mean, I've got my theories. I, I feel like I remember at the same time that Nickelback started getting hate. I rem- two other bands that I remember receiving a similar amount of hate either at the same time or not long afterwards were Green Day and Fallout. Huh. Now, Green Day had done American Idiot and 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 you know since Amer- American Idiot has stood the test of time in a really really interesting way but I remember when American Idiot came out a lot of people shitting on it because they were sitting here going this is not Dookie this is not Insomniac this is not Nimrod these are not these albums yeah. that I love and associate with why are they doing this weird what the fuck is Jesus of Suburbia? Like, I don't care. I want the old Green Day. And I remember a lot of people shitting on American Idiot at that time. And, you know, obviously it's made its impact. It's, I consider it one of the great albums of the last 50 years. But I remember a lot of people shitting on Green Day for that because Green Day was taking a risk that didn't work for a lot of people then and I feel has since come around. I remember Fallout Boy was just entering the decline of their popularity, like, post-2005, when they kind of peaked yeah. up. Uh, and then you had a lot of people who talked about, like, filet Do, and they were upset that filet Do wasn't as good as Infinity on High. And Green and Fall Out Boy kind of, like, fell off the map for a bit after that. They needed that. to go recoup. Yeah. And they came back and delivered a really solid out. I think we've talked before... Save Rock and Roll um, this is podcast. my favorite Fall Out Boy album. Absolutely. It's your favorite. I like it. I admittedly don't like it as much as the old stuff, but I like it. And I'm happy that they're back and that they're working. But a lot of people were shitting on Fall Out Boy hard in that period of time. And it and it felt like the old boy band hate from the late 2000s. Yeah. You know, um, and you know, even before that, like I remember, Bill Hicks used to have a bit in the early '90s where he like talked, he joked, quote unquote, joked about how much he wanted to murder the new kids on the block. <laughs> in the same set where he talked about how much he loved Jimi Hendrix, and he's like, Jimi Hendrix was a real artist, and now you have these fucking new kids on the block. And that bit, like, for much as I love. Bill Hicks, and as much as I love both Jimi Hendrix and New Kids on the Block, and admittedly I love Jimi Hendrix more than New Kids on the Block. As you should. I don't think that bit has aged well. Yeah. It felt very much like a, I hate this because it doesn't meet a standard of artistry that I have decided is necessary. But Jimi Hendrix wasn't just writing music that felt good to him. Jimi Hendrix had Eric Burden of the animals behind him going like, okay, Jimmy, we need to, we need to write, you can do your noodly songs, but we also need to write the radio hits. And that shit worked. And Jimmy cared about it. 
and the new kids cared about it. And Nickelback, who of the three bands I just mentioned, Green Day, Fall Out Boy, and them, Green Day took a risk that was, you know, they had to come back from a little bit and has ultimately paid off. Fall Out Boy reached a natural decline, took some time to recoup as artists, as you put it, and came back. And Nickelback has consistently remained successful in that entire period of time. And I wonder if that has anything to do with why their hate has endured. I I would have to say probably. I I was sitting here and I was trying to think, hmm, what is a classic rock equivalent to Nickelback? And uh, I'm about to tell you where my brain let me. I'm going to warn you, this may or may not end up in a fight. Hit me. Tom Petty and the Heartbreakers. I don't know if I agree, but I wouldn't. I don't think I'd fight about it. Damn! Um, but I, but I would ask. <laughs> no, I'm just. I I like Tom Petty. I never loved I think Tom I, Petty. I, I think about Tom Petty, and I think about how uh, maybe Bruce Springsteen is, is also a decent uh, comparison. Because what I'm thinking about is cut you if you go after Bruce Springsteen. <laughs> there we go. Please. Please continue. No, I'm not going to shit on Springsteen. What I'm what I'm drawing a parallel here to is uh, both Bruce Springsteen and Tom Petty. I sort of equate to this Americana classic rock nowadays, but you know the the songs were not. The, the 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 way the songs were written and the and the style of the song and just sort of the the sound. I'm sitting here drawing. Uh, links in my head between Nickelback and uh, I mean more Tom Petty than Bruce Springsteen, but a little bit of this just sort of arena rock, uh, uh, love yeah, America, yeah, sort of mm. vibe. Hmm. I mean, hmm. so so it's your theory <laughs> that um, what that those those groups. You know, I'm going to focus on Tom Petty so that I don't punch your face next time I see you. Right. Um, but um, but the idea that is there a sellout factor there or is it like sellout's not the right word so much as just a a a, a grandiose appeal because we're we're sitting here talking about how Nickelback has been successful and I, I guess more what I'm saying is that if Nickelback had come about in the 70s 80s maybe we're talking about them the same way we talk about tom petty that's 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 where i'm trying to lead us okay Uh, okay so like i'm hearing let me posit this um remember def leppard sure okay so i remember watching a def leppard documentary back in the day and mutt lang who was their longtime producer uh, they told a story about Mutt Lang talking to them about writing, I want to say it was the writing of Hysteria, which was like their biggest album. I think that was kind of their career peak. Like mm-hmm. it had more hits, more hit singles than any other album that they had. Um, but I think I remember uh, Joe Elliott probably talking about how they would regularly, while they were writing songs, you know, their instincts would be to go into these big, again, kind of noodly technically complex uh, musical compositions. Yeah. And Mutt Lang would be right there behind them, just like, guys, 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 you can't, you, you can't be doing this. If you want to play arenas, you need to play, you need to write music that sounds good in arenas. This isn't jazz. It's rock and roll. Keep it simple. Keep it hook. Keep, like, good melodic hooks, you know, big yeah. guitars, yeah, big yeah. sound. 
and and Def Leppard did that, and Def Leppard wrote like objectively really great music. Like I'm I'm a Def Leppard fan, but Def Leppard is a band that does get shat on because they came out at the same time as like Judas Priest, right. and Iron Maiden, who we look at as having more artistic integrity. Uh, not to say like not, none of those all of those bands have sold tens of millions of albums, but right. girls like Def Leppard. Def Leppard sells to a broader appeal of people. Yes, this is where I've been trying to get to. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Def Leppard will play in a JCPenney on a Tuesday afternoon. Right. That ain't happening with British Steel. Like <laughs> As much as I wish. <laughs> I get that. I get that. Um, I think we've tied this... I think we've we've managed to tie this back into... It's the safety factor. It is the... Uh, music that is maybe more designed to be enjoyable to more people um, than music that is a little edgier, has a little bit more of a point of view behind it, but is not going to be as universally accepted. Not to say that Nickelback or Tom Petty or Def Leppard or any of these guys didn't write it with a point of view, but they also were sure, or at least had the thought in mind of let's write the song that a thousand people will like instead of a song that a hundred people will love. Yeah. Okay. No, I get that. Uh, now, now the funny thing there, that I, I'm going to undercut that same point, is Nickelback will still write a song. Like, doesn't the way that you are start with Chad Kroger being like, I like your pants around your feet? Yes, like, yes. Um, yeah, I, I mean, I I know somebody who lost their virginity to that song. <laughs> like, that's, I mean, that's, that, is a, that is a very sexual song. That's a good point. The Rockstar song makes a ton of drug references, right. and that was a huge hit. Yep, like, yep. But I do see that, like, compare those to, you know, what's that? Oh, the one, the one that I really hate that I heard it, and I'm just like, oh, God, this could be a Chris Daughtry song, and I hate Daughtry. <laughs> um, but the one was like, I love you, ah, whatever that is, like. I hate that song. I legitimately <laughs> think that song is that song is the walls of my dentist's office. Right. Like, it is so bland and uninteresting. That song is the artistic equivalent of when you go to TJ Maxx and buy artwork. Yeah, absolutely. Um, and it's all by comparison, a song about like, I, I, my first girlfriend, first, second, one of my first girlfriends, her favorite song was animals, which is about, um, mm-hmm. banging a chick in the back of her car and her dad catches you. That is, that is the song animals in a sentence. That song is still a lot less edgier than let's go to iron maiden and do six, six, six. Uh, the number of the beast, mm-hmm. you know, that's, that's a lot edgier than rescuing my girlfriend from a satanic ritual. Sure. Now, is it, is it, uh, edgier than poisons talk dirty to me, which is the exact same premise, more or less? No, not at all. Um, I, Ooh, I wonder how many people you could get to say that poison is the hair metal nickelback. You know, I can yeah, see right? that. A lot, I know a lot of people, a lot of people, especially people who are, you know, fans of 
Guns N' Roses is easy. There are a lot of people who are big fans of Guns N' Roses, even if they're not fans of hair metal. Um, I can think of a number of people who are fans of, say, like Wasp uh, or Motley Crue, but maybe aren't fans of the whole genre. But Poison fan, you're not really going to be a Poison or like a Cinderella fan if you're not into hair metal. Like if you're not into that subgenre. So, you know, I could see that. Uh, I really could. Also, uh, the one other thought that I had about this as far as just why people are so just pissy about this concept is... I can't remember what it was. I talk talk so much about music documentaries. um, But (laughs) there was... I want to say it was like the seven, seven eras of rock or the... Something like that. Seven Ages of Rock. I think that was the name of it. It was like a seven-part documentary for probably VH1 or VH1 Classic or whatever. But um, I remember them talking about Alternative. And they... I remember they talked about, like, the grunge era. And they started with, like, the the episode... These episodes always went through, like, the history of the genre as as is, like, well-notated. And I remember that episode, like, started with the Pixies, R.E.M., moved into, like, Nirvana and Pearl Jam, and there was a very big deal made of uh, how much the post-grunge alternative hard rock bands basically just copped Eddie yeah. Vedder's vocals. Yeah. Like, his style. And that's where you get Creed and Nickelback and, like, the band that did... What was that? The Calling Song? Um if I could, then, then I, I would. would. Yeah, they're all, they're all kind of doing a bad Eddie Vedder impression. And Chad Kroger has absolutely, like, taken that mantle. Like, 100%. Uh, his, his vocal style is clearly inspired by Eddie Vedder. Now, granted, again, the band formed in 95, I assume it wasn't Kroger's first band. Like, he came into this... He probably came by it, honestly. But yeah, I think for a lot of people, like, Nickelback... I think there's probably a lot of people who grew up with Pixies or Nirvana or or Pearl Jam and really believed in the artistry of that. Which is silly because, again, Kurt Cobain wrote songs with a lot of melodies in mind. As much as he got disillusioned later in his life with his career... Sure, sure. Uh, Eddie Vedder still writes music with an, eye, with an ear towards... You know, he wants he wants to write hits just like anybody else. Um, a lot of, I think a lot of people view Nickelback maybe as like the death of a certain period for them. Like, they see a guy who sings like Eddie Vedder, guitarists who play like the guys in Alice in Chains some of the time, yeah. uh, which never mind the fact that Jerry Cantrell is an open and huge Nickelback fan, and every time they play Seattle, Jerry Cantrell goes out on stage with them and plays some Alice in Chains songs. Huh. Uh, yeah, yeah, I learned that from that same documentary. He's he's a big, he, he co-signs Nickelback hard. Um, but I think a lot of people see these musicians, this band doing this, and they feel like it represents some kind of death of something that was really meaningful to them. I can see that. And, yeah, and maybe they just latch on to that, you know? it's it's it, Maybe it's like when old blues people saw brill-building artists like Neil Sedaka or, you know, even, even Elvis at a certain stage and went, God, Big Mama Thornton and Robert Johnson died for this? Like, sure. It's easy to hate the sellout, 
but you know nobody wants to admit that the sellout gets paid. Yeah, I mean people hate on the money, and it's not that there's not room for criticism there. It's just to me. People hate on Nickelback not because they care about the music. It's because they want to be in this club of people who hate Nickelback. And the fact of the matter is, they sell this many records. There are at least a few people who are very big Nickelback fans, but don't want to admit it. Sure. And that is shitty. That's awful. No, we don't have time for hypocrisy. I, I will fight that all the time. Yeah. So, I... I so basically, I I just hate the needless Nickelback hate. I don't defend them. I don't adore them. You know, I don't want to create any false binaries here. Sure. I think they're fine. I don't follow them very closely. If some of their songs come on the radio, I won't turn them off. If others of their songs come on the radio, I will turn them off because that's just kind of how I take that band. They're they're very much a song by song kind of group for me, but. I'm really, really tired of people acting like hating on Nickelback gives them any kind of cred when really it just kind of exposes hypocrisy. Sure. No, I I got no problems with that, man. I I, I think that was a really, a really interesting uh, viewpoint that I personally hadn't considered and a really well, cool way to talk about it. Yeah. I appreciate that. Yeah. So, um, to wrap up, we got time for uh, one question. We always do one question, but... <laughs> but today we have time for one. Yes, yes. Hold on, uh, so you brought this question to the table. Uh, do you want to read that, or should I? I'll read it. Just give me one sec, buddy. Uh, okay. So, yes, uh, I have our question today, and uh, we have a first for love-hate relationship, somebody who actually gave us a call sign. Yes. Yes. Okay. All right, and so here is the question. Hi there, love-hate relationship. I have a work-related question for you. I work in a very tiny company, and I haven't always gotten along with my coworkers. Recently, my boss, who is also the owner, has taken to writing very passive-aggressive notes whenever he wants something done or thinks I'm not doing a good enough job. I hate the shit out of this tactic, but I'm not sure how to go about talking to my boss about it without causing more problems for myself down the line. What should I do? Thanks, Jim Halpert. Jim Halpert. Wow. That's, that feels so... That feels like such an interesting call sign, considering that A Quiet Place just came out, and John oh. Krasinski is like horror movie man all of a sudden. I didn't even make that connection. I just went straight to the office. Yeah. Well, by the I way, mean, Quiet Place was awesome. Okay. I I would love to see it. Um my lady person is not a fan of the horror, but she is a fan of the John Krasinski and especially the Emily Blunt. So who knows? Maybe I can maybe I can convince her. I hope you do. I think it's well worth seeing. Yeah. If not, I'll I'll probably see it on my own. Yeah. Um okay, All right, Jim, Jim. Halpert. Jinx. Uh, no. Uh, do you want to you want to spearhead this one, Andy, or should I start? You go ahead, man. Okay. So this is obviously delicate. Um, now, now, Jim, you did not give us a great amount of detail into the what you perceive to be the dynamics of your boss outside of the fact that they are the type of person 
who feels that passive-aggressive notes are the way to get anything done. So I think that that, la- that lack of context does make answering this a little tricky, but I'm going to kind of speak in best and worst case scenarios. If there's a best case scenario in this, it's that even though your boss has this passive-aggressive streak where they don't feel as though they can communicate with you in a clear, open, honest way, if they've shown you any indication that with a little pushback they can be receptive, I think it might be worthwhile to go for it. You know, there there is room in discussions like these for a direct approach, for an approach where you look at someone head on and go, okay, I'm an adult, you're an adult, I'm assuming you're both adults, I don't know, you didn't say, if you're working at a tiny company, I assume you're not like a 14-year-old working... <laughs> bagging groceries at the mom and pop store, but maybe I'm wrong. Regardless, you can just kind of say, I, I I want to enter this into a mature way. This is not a productive way to get me to do anything and see if you can communicate that way. That said, you might not feel that way. Uh, and I'm not going to pretend that the world always is as it should be. If this is a boss who, honestly, you don't feel you can trust with your problems, first and foremost, you got to protect yourself. Um, find ways to address the issue that will put you in the most minimal amount of harm. If you have an HR person or any kind of intermediate management between you and the owner, see if you can discuss it with them. See if you can pick their brain for strategies. See if you can find ways to address the problem in between that. Alternatively... You might even want to start looking for another gig if you really don't feel like you can successfully do your job in this space with this person. Yeah, uh, I don't remember the statistic, but I do know that the vast majority of people, when they leave a job, do report that bad management and specifically a boss tends to be the reason. Yeah, I, I want to go ahead and... Say so you you went exactly where my head was going with the the answers to this. You know, I read it and I assume that problems for yourself down the line mean, uh, you know, this said boss being increasingly shitty to you or even you losing your job. I I assume that is the chief concern here with confrontation. Mm-hmm. Um, I think trying to talk to an, an intermediary. Um, especially if it is an HR or some other manager in the company is a really great idea and you can sort of help have them help you to get your point across. Maybe soften the blow, maybe, maybe talk to the boss uh, on their own and try to handle the problem without you being in there to be a, uh, a possibly volatile element if that is not an option for you, um, keeping professional, I think, is the way to go here. You know, it work is work, and even in a tiny company with uh, not a lot of people, um, you know, maybe it can, maybe the lines can blur sometimes between worker and friend. But mm-hmm. I say lean worker and lean employee boss dynamic, and. You know, it's it's difficult to. Uh, I'm a very non-confrontational person. It's difficult to sometimes put yourself in your boss's office and 
talk to him about an issue, but I think that's what you got to do if, uh, if you're truly on your own here. And the way to do that is to stay calm and stay professional and really, um, diplomatically lay out the situation. Hey, you've been giving me these notes. Um, the instruction you want me as your employee to do, I feel like would be better received if you were just straightforward about it instead of doing it this way. This is not the most productive way, and I want to be the most productive employee I can to you. Something like that. Yeah. I mean, I... I am not a trusting person when it comes to workplaces. Um, I've had very, very bad experiences with management in my career and I've had I've had a number of jobs I mean I've only had a couple of jobs that I've had for more than a year at a time uh, part of which has been you know outside factors geography yeah. uh, layoffs etc etc um, things that aren't 100% in my control but I gotta tell you like you mentioned here that you don't always get along with all of your coworkers, and that makes me think that you probably also don't have a lot of avenues of support with other people in this company. Mm. Uh, and another big issue with small companies tends to be you see this small group of people, you interact exclusively with this small group of people, and if you don't like somebody, they can often make your day-to-day life miserable if for no other reason than the fact that they're in your presence. Sure. And if that person has authority over you, if this boss has the ability to make your day-to-day existence just that shitty, I, I mean, that's... I, I don't necessarily believe you have to enjoy what you do for a living. I don't... I don't... I'm not a believer in that, you know... I remember Jennifer Aniston's line in Office Space where she's like, <laughs> I've got news for you. Most people hate their jobs. I think that's true. I think most people hate yeah. their jobs. I, I also do know that, uh, what was it? There was some article or some study that came out recently, not recently, in the last few years that I felt has been absolutely true of every job I've ever had, which was your, your happiness in a job is most associated uh, with, I think it's your rewards for good work. Like, understanding that if you do good work, you're going to see a reward for it. Uh, that you're that you have some autonomy over your day-to-day uh, work and how your workflow goes. And then, again, the biggest factor, getting along with your, the people above you. Yeah. And if you don't get along with the people above you, your day-to-day is going to suck. So, a, I, I, and I don't tend to trust bosses. I don't. If someone has a... That's just me. I hate authority. I, that's, I've been going to therapy for that shit for years. Like, <laughs> I, have, I have... That's not just me being like, oh, I'm a teenager. I despise... Author-. Like, I've taken the personality tests. I've had counselors and mental health professionals go damn you have some real problems trusting authority and i'm sitting here going no shit so if you see this as a minor inconvenience that is just kind of making things harder for you but it's bearable i would say find small ways to deal with it like having a casual conversation about it or 
specific criticism might also help. Like, yeah. instead of going to your boss and going, hey, you give me a note for every little thing I do, and it's bullshitty. Maybe, this is just, this is a practical suggestion. Maybe, if you think your boss would be more receptive to it, maybe going to uh, him, her, they, I kind of want to assume it's a him, but that might not be fair. Um, maybe going to them and saying, hey, this note that you gave me yesterday about this specific task, it has these four things on it. Um, I can handle the three of them, but this one point is kind of making things difficult for me. Would it be okay if we made an adjustment with it? Like getting hyper-specific and then broadening it out from there might be a way to kind of slow burn this process and see if you can make some kind of long-term change over the course of a period of time. Like yeah. find the worst parts of this problem, address those first, and see if your boss is receptive to it. If your boss is not receptive to it, if it results in a big problem, really do think that I mean, I don't want to assume your economic station here. I don't want to assume what you can and cannot do, but minimizing your day-to-day -day misery at your job is kind of important. Kind of a good way. It's a good way to improve your quality of life because I assume you're full-time here. You're spending 40, maybe 40 plus hours a week dealing with this bullshit, and if that can be 40 hours that are less shitty than more shitty, your overall quality of life is going to be better. So I would say if there's no hope of these kinds of actionable things happening, these conversations happening, these uh, getting any kind of intermediary or getting any kind of small changes uh, built up over a period of time, start looking at other jobs. Start the process. That's not to say quit and leave and go do something else. Don't do that. Not telling you to do that. Don't be writing in, Jim Halper, telling me about how you're doing that. Um, but maybe start looking for something new. You know, this is this is the American economy right now. Yeah. Uh, people jump around between jobs. People don't stay places anymore. Like I said, I, I've had I've been at, I've been at my current job for a year. Uh, it is the uh, and I and I plan to be here for the foreseeable future. Um, I've already changed positions with the same organization once within that year, um, which was a good thing. It was a positive, you know, promotionary type of deal. Uh, but I haven't had that many gigs that lasted much more than a year or two years, and that's just kind of how things are for people these days. Yeah. So it's not going to be the worst thing in the world if you start looking for some other new avenues. If this is truly unbearable. If there are ways to make it more bearable, though, pursue them and pursue them specifically with this boss in the way that will minimize the impact to you as best as possible. Yeah, I think, you know, it, we've given you kind of a two tiered answer here. If this is bored, this is closer to a inconvenience, um, then just remember to keep cool and not lose your head over addressing it but do try to address it if this is a devastating problem then extraction uh you know may, might be the long-term best solution that is not a defeat
to to remove yourself from the situation is not a defeat and it is not a failure. It is you safeguarding your own work life. Yeah. Couldn't have said it better. Yeah. So in any case, we wish you the best, Jim, and we hope that, uh, you know, everything works out. And I hate passive-aggressive people, so I really hope that one way or another your boss stops doing that. Hell to the yes. And uh, that's been our show for this week. Um, So just a reminder, if you have a relationship problem with anyone over anything and you've decided (laughs) (laughs) and you've decided we for some reason are uh, the ones to help you work it out uh, please send us uh, your questions and you can send those to love hate relationship podcast at gmail.com where we promise we'll read them you can also tweet us at LHR pod. That's L H R P O D with your questions. And you can follow us to keep up with new episodes. Yep. You can follow me personally. I'm Andy Bowell uh, on Twitter at Jovocop2113. And I'm Alex Ruiz. And I'm A underscore X underscore R U I Z on both Twitter and Instagram. Thank you all so much for listening. And please, as always, tell your enemies. <laughs>